0: Greetings, and welcome to episode 13 of the 5 by your bi-weekly dose of board gaming reviews. This is Mike, and wow, do we have a great episode this week. So many games that I love. Istanbul, City of Iron, Gold West, Shakespeare, and Suburbia. And, well, instead of rambling on,
1: how about we just get to the contributors to hear all about them. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Istanbul. I've made it clear on a number of occasions that I absolutely love German designer Rudiger Dorn. I own nine of his games, and I have about another five on my wish list. Of those I've played, my favorite by far is 2014's pick-up-and-deliver game of Turkish merchants, Istanbul. Istanbul is one of Dorn's trademark breadcrumbs games. You move around from tile to tile, leaving assistants or items or workers or whatever as you go. Istanbul won the 2014 Kinderspiel Jahres, that's the Advanced Game of the Year award in Germany. It's a big deal if you don't know. Look it up and Dorne absolutely deserved the award for Istanbul. He manages to fuse pick-up-and-deliver with worker placement, contract fulfillment, and lots of player interaction that never feels mean or destructive, but forces you to be really aware of every opponent's position on the board at all times. For us, playing Istanbul feels like something akin to going to the carnival or a buffet, where there's a world of stuff to do, and I want to do all of it, and I just have to figure out how to make it work so that I can get everything in in the amount of time that I have. But what is Istanbul? In the box, you'll find a stack of large location tiles that get laid out in a 4x4 grid, some wooden discs that you'll stack on top of each other, money, and some cards. I'm not going to sugarcoat it though. Istanbul takes a minute to set up, especially the first time. If you're playing with two, there's some tiles you have to take out and some player pieces you'll need to set aside. I keep all my two-player bits in separate bags from the three-to-five-player bits. And unfortunately, yes, this game cannot really be put in a Plano box in a satisfying way. I've tried. So what are you going to do with all this stuff? Well, you're a merchant, of course. And your goal is to move around the city, load your cart with goods, trade them, sell them, buy more, sell those, and then eventually collect five gems and win the game. You are a fat disk of wood and your assistants are thinner disks of wood in the stack underneath you. On your turn, you can move two spaces in any direction to a new location, drop one of your assistants, and then take the action of that location. As you move around the city though, you're going to run out of assistance. Since you can only move two spaces at a time and only take an action if you have an assistant, You can't just move across the board in one direction. You'll end up assistantless on the other side of nowhere, and you'll have to use one or maybe even two turns to make your way back to the fountain and pick up your assistants. Another thing I really love about Istanbul is the lack of rounds. There are no phases, no round cleanup, no mid-game scoring. You just keep taking turns until someone wins. Each of the big tiles in the grid is a different location with a different action that you can take when you land on it. There are, of course, some special cards you can pick up at one location to give you some one-time-use powers, bonus goods, etc., These, as is usual in the games we all like, mostly allow you to just break some fundamental rule of the game one time. When you get to a location, you take the action of it. You can load your cart with fruit, spices, silk, silver, upgrade your cart to carry more, sell the goods from your cart for money, trade them for the jewels you need to win the game. I think a lot of my great love for Istanbul comes from the two gambling locations, which are an unusual pop of output randomness for a Euro game. At the black market, you get one free ordinary good, and then roll to see if you can get a 7. If so, have some free silver goods. If not, well, too bad. You get nothing. Megan's favorite location in Istanbul is the Tea House, where you choose a number between 3 and 12, roll two dice. If you roll higher, congrats, you get the money that you called out. If you roll lower, well, too bad. Here's two bucks. Go away. These locations are incredibly fun, and though they're a little out of place in what is otherwise a mostly perfect information euro, the only things hidden are your bonus cards, they help make Istanbul more fun and more tense than it would otherwise be. A couple of other quick points. When you go to the city jail, you can have a word with the bailiff and you can spring your loser nephew. He's so grateful he'll go anywhere in the city for you and take that action. If another merchant runs into him, they call the constable, get a reward, and your nephew goes back to jail, allowing you to spring him again later in the game. You'll also run into your old friends the governor and the smuggler. They can help you out by providing favors for a price, but then they flit off to somewhere else in the city. Suffice to say that I love this game and recommend it highly to any fans of other Euros. Box, production, art, components are all just top notch here. Originally published by Pegasus Spiel and co-published in the US by AEG, Istanbul does have a touch of an illustration problem. In that, there are zero women depicted anywhere in this game. Now, there's a historical accuracy argument that I'm sure the publishers would make, but I have two responses. Number one, uh, who cares? It's not a historical document. Just draw some of the people as women. It's not that hard. And two, that's nonsense anyway. In the Ottoman Empire, women could own property, had access to the legal system, and bought and sold goods. Sorry if I'm always trying to shoehorn diversity into everything, but if you don't like it, mm, don't listen to the show. Publishers, just draw some women, or some people of color, or women of color, or whatever. Anyway, there are two expansions for this game and a bunch of promos. Do you need any of this stuff? Like always, the answer is no. But I will say, the first expansion, Mocha & Bakish, which is the only one I've played, adds a significant amount of strategy, replayability, and variability that after you've played the game several times, you may want to upgrade into. So, who should buy Istanbul? People who like pickup and deliver games. People who like worker placement games. People who like buying and selling goods in a shared marketplace people who like building efficient paths as a path to victory, and people who are able to get through a 60-minute game without making a Constantinople or a The Spice Must Flow joke. I give Istanbul four out of four wooden carts loaded down with silks, spices, and silver, delivered with reverie to the Sultan's palace. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason Hello
0: there, it's Mike, and today I want to tell you about City of Iron by Ryan Lockett and published by Red Raven Games. My trajectory in hobby, board gaming, has a couple of notable points. The first being when I walked into Pegasus Games in Madison, Wisconsin a dozen years ago, and they talked me to trying Carcassonne. The second being in late 2013, when I stumbled across some pictures of the amazing artwork in the first edition of City of Iron. It's shallow, I know, but I'll admit that the art really grabbed me, and I started tracking down how to get this game. And thanks to the Jack Vassal auction that year, I was able to get a copy. I may have overpaid by <clears throat> a couple of dollars, but it was worth it. City of Iron really opened up the world of gaming beyond gateway games to me. Sure, I already knew there were more complex games out there, but none had convinced me to take the plunge until City of Iron. In City of Iron, you are building as one of the four factions. The Cresaria, the City State of Arc, the Hog Republic, and the Toads of Om. And while building your civilization and tying in as best you can to your civilization's advantages are important, At the end of the day, this is an area control game, where the areas you want to control for points are the goods you're collecting. The game plays out over a series of seven rounds, with four phases each round. In the second edition, these are named after the seasons. In spring, you choose turn order, with costs for going first, or a coin available to go near the end. Money is tight, so that coin is often tempting. Summer is when you do the bulk of your actions. Three actions each summer, specifically. You can draw a card from either your citizen or military decks, build a card from the biro if you can afford it, or store it for later build actions if you can't afford it quite yet. Research to gain a science token, which is needed for certain buildings or cards. Tax for money, use experts for their abilities, or attack a town. Buildings and towns give you goods and other benefits. The buildings you build to your civilization are a permanent benefit, assuming you don't raise the building yourself but towns can be taken away by other players. Military experts are used to attack, with other military civilian experts assisting to cover the distance required to the town. Civilization experts help you gain money or science, explore or gain other abilities related to growing your civilization. This is the peaceful and my preferred path to victory. After the three actions of summer comes autumn, which is just board cleanup, coin collecting based on your current tableau, scoring if it's a scoring round, and resetting your hand. Last comes winter, which is where you look through your civilization's civilian and military buy pools and buy the cards you want to use later. Newly purchased cards go directly into your hand, which is super useful. You'll want to buy cards that work well with the available buildings, and you'll want to buy buildings that work well with your civilization's advantages. Nothing super game-changing, but each civilization does have some advantages over the others. At the end of each scoring round, the influence of each good types are compared and points are awarded to the top two influential players. You can also gain points for specific buildings and completing objectives on your land tiles. So, I get asked somewhat regularly what the differences are between the first and second editions. They're frankly pretty minor, but if you're going to buy one edition, then get the second edition. It has the best cards from the Experts and Engines expansion. Also, the bonuses on the land boards are a good improvement, and the iconography and board cleanup are a nice touch. I also really appreciate the point salad variant, which makes the game less confrontational by removing the competition to have the most of each good you are collecting. I think I really lucked out when I first played City of Iron. I was ready to move on into deeper games, and with elements of deck building, tableau building, and card used to drive area majority of the goods tracks, This is certainly a step up from Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne without being too heavy. This game introduced me to the concepts of a biro, deck building, different faction advantages, and variable turn order, and I just ate it up. I personally wish more games used the mechanism of just flipping the discard over. The momentary pause as I try to figure out the best order to discard the cards I just used is delicious. This game also introduced me to diverse and inclusive art, something that subsequent games by Ryan Lockett have only improved upon. But I also wonder if I would be disappointed moving back to City of Iron from, say, above and below or near and far. City of Iron is by far Ryan's crunchiest, most mechanically complex game. And while I find the world he has created for the game to be rich and complex, this is not in any way a storytelling game. Just a smooth, deep, and wonderfully thematic hero, and one of my favorite games. So until next time, if you want to talk Shrikas, Bottle demons, Magic Crystals, or anything else, you can find me on Twitter, at Mike Risley.
2: Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about Gold West. Designed by J. Alex Kevin and published in 2014 by Tasty Mistral Games, Gold West puts two to four players in the role of prospectors, headed out into the previously unexplored frontier in search of precious metals. This resource management and area control game is about as close to perfect as I can imagine. My only complaint is that I just don't play it enough for some reason. Over the course of the game, players will build mining camps and settlements on different claims, each of which will provide two or three resources of particular types to the player who moves in, dependent on the type of terrain represented by the claim. These resources will be used in future turns to perform actions. Stone and wood are used as building materials to build the camps and expand the player's mining empire. The precious gold, silver, and copper found in the hills of the frontier can simply be shipped off to earn points, or instead can be used in particular combinations to fulfill valuable investment contracts or to gain influence in Boomtown, which will open up endgame scoring opportunities to everyone who has influence in the town. As each terrain type is associated with different resources, players often want to spread out across the map, but there are also valuable rewards available for focusing on a particular type of terrain through majorities, and this leads to pleasingly thinky placement decisions, especially as placing somewhere also immediately reveals the resources that will be available to those who move into the adjacent spaces, which may end up providing your opponents with particularly valuable opportunities. But my favorite thing in the game is the mancala esque resource supply track, which makes for some super satisfying moments when you get exactly what you need for your turn and know that all your previous planning and placement has paid off. You see, when you gain resources each turn, you get to choose which of 4 bins to place them on your supply track and then receive points depending on where you put them. Lower bins will give more points. Up higher, you can even get no points for placing resources. In the very beginning of your turn, the first thing you do is pick up the contents of any one bin and start moving up the track, dropping one piece into each bin closer to the top of your player board. Whatever's left in your hand, once you've moved past the rest of the conveyor, Benkala style, is the selection of building materials and metals that you have to actually take your turn. So while placing in the bottom bin might give an immediate three points. Those resources are going to take longer to emerge from the track, and they're going to get separated and spread thin as they go. It's a really neat puzzly aspect, and I enjoy seeing the different ways that players approach it. Some will place resources high for less immediate points but increase security in knowing what's going to come out later, while others go for points, place low more often than not, and then try to drop just the right piece each time they use resources in an effort to tweak the bin contents and set up future turns. Another pressure placed on the players is that they must gather resources every turn, and the preferable way to do this is by building a camp or settlement. But if they don't have any wood or stone come out of the supply track, the player instead will have to loot a claim, taking the resources from the site and then discarding the token without getting to build on the board. Instead of building, their tent piece for the turn will go to the wanted area which signifies the bounty placed on those who claim jump. And this means not just an immediate negative point for doing so, but there's more negative points up for grabs later for those who've looted more than others. So while players might really want to just grab all that valuable point generating gold, silver, and copper that's on the board, they'll need to keep enough building resources in their track and in the right places to keep them coming out on a regular basis, preferably on every turn. It's a relatively simple and pleasant game to teach. Everything moves really smoothly together and it just makes sense as you explain it. When you add in the nice chunky puzzle piece components that make up the variable board setup and then put Adam McIver's impressive graphic design on top. It's no wonder I consider this game to be just delightful on the table. It's really relaxing to play, it looks gorgeous, and people love the little prospector and stagecoach meeples. But it's still a game full of interesting choices, and that Mancala setup has the right amount of trickiness to make sure that your players don't end up so relaxed that they just fall asleep. That variable setup of the board means that opportunities for endgame points are going to shift from game to game, and combined with the random distribution of claim tokens, it stops the game feeling samey without making you relearn the game every time looking at a new setup. It makes me think of a Stefan Feld game, and given that I own most of Feld's back catalog, I'm considering that a compliment. So if you're interested in a beautifully produced resource management game that plays in under an hour and features a tricky Mancala planning mechanism that only you can mess up for yourself, then consider adding a copy of Goal West to your collection. And until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening.
3: I love games that make me feel like I'm inhabiting another place or time or world for a couple of hours, but as much as I love theme, I don't want to sacrifice gameplay for it. If I had to choose a game with brilliant mechanisms and a bland theme, or a game with a beautiful theme and broken mechanisms, I'd put them both aside and play Shakespeare, which handles both brilliantly. Designed by Hervé Regal and published by Istari Games in 2015, Shakespeare pits rival playwrights against each other in Elizabethan London, competing to put on the greatest performance in the city and win the favor of the queen. The game takes six rounds, one for each day of the week you have to assemble your theater company, build sets, design costumes, and rehearse the actors. Each round begins with a wager. Players secretly decide how many actions they'll take, up to five maximum. They hide their tokens in a closed fist and all reveal their wagers at the same time. Whoever chose the fewest actions goes first and gets a victory point, called a prestige point, as a bonus. The rest go in order based on how many actions they chose. This mechanism adds tension to every round. Do you choose fewer actions because you desperately need to hire a particular actor, or get first crack at the available costumes? Or do you choose more actions, knowing it will put you in last place this round because, well, because every action is precious in Shakespeare? You need as many actions as you can get, and you need to use them all efficiently. There are three acts that each need to be rehearsed before the two dress rehearsals. A well-rehearsed company will earn you cash and prestige points. And there's additional pressure to focus on rehearsing because not rehearsing enough before dress rehearsal will cause you to lose prestige points. But you can't neglect the morale track. It resets every round and will either gain you a bonus or cost you a penalty each time. And then there's costuming. Completed costumes give you cash and or prestige points when you complete them, plus a bonus at dress rehearsal. On the other hand, set design gives you a one-time bonus when you buy it, which can be just what you need to keep up in that round. And don't forget to visit Queen Elizabeth and get money. One of my favorite mechanisms in Shakespeare is that you can hire any cast and crew you want and don't have to pay their salaries until the end of the game. If you lose track of money, you can end up with a costly deficit at the end. Besides money, the Queen can also give you secret objective cards, which are worth prestige points if you fulfill the conditions on the card. I love how well-balanced Shakespeare is. Every action feels critically important, and no matter what you do, you feel like you aren't doing enough of something else. That constant tension between competing priorities keeps me on the edge of my seat for the entire game. I'm always looking ahead, trying to figure out how I can possibly get what I need before the next dress rehearsal. The theme in Shakespeare is beautifully executed. The game works continually to make you feel like you aren't just pushing tokens around a board. You're a struggling playwright, putting together a performance that you hope will impress the queen more than any other. For instance, most costume bonuses gain you points on the rehearsal tracks because having a beautiful costume inspires your actors to do better in rehearsal. If you haven't rehearsed enough by dress rehearsal days, or if you fail to pay your workers, you lose prestige points. Because word gets around that your company isn't as successful as it seems, and so you lose prestige. But my favorite little thematic touch is the Hamlet card. When you activate Hamlet, he causes all the other players to lose a point on the morale track. Because the actor playing Hamlet is so good, seeing him rehearse for you demoralizes all the other companies. Shakespeare has a bit more interaction than the typical worker placement game. Besides competing for limited resources, there are some actions, like Hamlet, that cause other players to lose morale. And of course, there's the wager at the beginning of every round. In a game where every single action counts, there are real stakes to figuring out how many actions the other players will wager and how many you need to. As much as I love Shakespeare, I do have a couple of caveats. It's not the easiest game to teach inexperienced players. A few weeks ago, I played a game of Shakespeare that included two people who hadn't played many modern tabletop games. They both found that there was a bit too much to keep track of, too many mechanisms they were always falling behind in. The careful balance of those competing priorities and the constant feeling of barely keeping up is one of the things I love about Shakespeare. But it's a lot to grasp for someone who isn't used to learning new games with complex rule sets in a short amount of time. Also, on a more trivial note, the components are a bit fiddly. Many little cardboard tokens that have to be placed just so on player mats, with no notches or cutouts on the mats to help them stay put. One table bump, and you're left trying to remember which costumes were completed. Or worse yet, picking up tiny cardboard circles off the floor. I played Shakespeare once in a bar, and I will never do that again. It felt like we spent just as much time looking for cardboard tokens that had fallen under the table as we did playing the game. But those are minor quibbles. Shakespeare is a wonderful game, a well-oiled machine of balanced mechanisms and elegant theme. Great use of theme means an evocative setting, not just pasted on but fully realized, and well integrated with the rules. In a truly great game, theme and mechanism reinforce each other. The theme makes the rules easier to understand, and the mechanisms make the theme feel more real. That's what Shakespeare accomplishes. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not rehearsing my latest play to win the Queen's favour, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah ovenall.
4: Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm talking about Suburbia, a tile-placing, city-building, economic game by Ted Ausback. Artwork is by Ted Ausback, Clemens Franz, and Olin Tim. My copy is published by Bezier Games and it plays in around 90 minutes. In Suburbia, you're building a neighbourhood of hexagons. These comprise of parks, offices, restaurants, airports, etc. You begin the game with one of each of three basic tiles for your neighbourhood to bloom from. Each hexagon tile provides a bonus of either income, the amount of money, or reputation, the amount of points you receive at the end of each turn. Some tiles provide you with additional bonus or penalty, depending on which other tiles they are adjacent to. As you ascend the population track, your reputation increases, so nicer your neighbourhood, the more new residents will be drawn to it. However, red lines are distributed over the population track, and every time you cross a line, both reputation and income are decreased on your borough board, which is where you keep track of your income and reputation. If you grow your reputation too quickly, you will soon find yourself without income to purchase new tiles, so lakes and basic tiles are on offer to assist when times be tough. There are always seven tiles on offer on the marketplace, as well as three stacks of basic tiles. Each tile has a cost, and an additional cost depends on where it's situated on the marketplace. The cost of tiles is reduced as they move further along the market and you keep playing until the end of game tile is revealed in the last 10 tiles of Stack C. I think Suburbia was purchased around 4 years ago and this is one of the first games that got me truly excited about getting into tabletop gaming. Because it was like entering a new realm and I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be good. I thought it sounded kind of like SimCity City in a board game form and I was never really too fussed with Sims or anything like that, I dabbled but honestly I found it a bit lonely and stressful. And this is the opposite of what I was looking for when thinking about ball games, but I still like that theme. So yeah, to cut a long story short, I think it sounded super cool. Thinking about it now, I think it was a bit of a brave choice for newbies. Not because it's an overly complex game, because it's not hard to learn, it's not terribly heavy. But I do feel like it's a bit of a gamer's game. It's got depth, but not so much depth that you're going to drown in a murky sea of confusion and uncertainty. But put it this way, as new gamers, it took a while to get to grips with the rules and the details and the point scoring. With most games I played a few years ago, I would kind of do the stuff it says in the tin. So when I first played Suburbia, I was probably just buying the cool sounding buildings, trying to earn money, attempting to meet my secret goal, and sort of cruised it and probably lost spectacularly. But there was always a moment during the second or third play of games where I'd just click with it and I'd say, like, hang on, I've got it, and then begin to see the design more and understand what I'm supposed to do and what's happening and the game's intentions, and that's a good feeling. Unfortunately, when I played it recently, I kind of sucked, and I thought, wow, I've played so many more games since Suburbia. Heavier games, bigger strategy games. So how on earth have I got worse at this one? And honestly, I always go back to the same thing that pre-baby, now toddler, I just slept more. I probably had to lay in until midday on a Saturday. I wasn't hunting for missing postman pat toy at 6am, and having heart palpitations. So... I guess it's a bit lame to blame on parenthood, but honestly, it has made me so much worse at games. But it's very rarely stopped me playing and giving it a fair shot. So yeah, I struggled with Suburbia the other night. But it's still a great game though, and I'll tell you why I think so. Like many games I favour, there's lots lot to gain. Not like it's dead easy to gain the things you need, but there's plenty to be gained if you play it right and plan ahead. There are so many considerations when purchasing and placing a tile, and some tiles interact with other tiles, not just in your neighbourhood but in everybody's. So I can imagine that in a 2 player plus game you've really got to be hyper aware of everything that's going on in everyone's areas, be it for your loss or your game. There's the income-reputation-money balance, which personally I've always found it quite tricky to navigate. I've often found myself having loads of cash and lots of potential buildings to purchase and not wanting to because I don't want to be skyrocketing ahead and cross loads of red lines and lose a ton of reputation and money as I go. Other times I've found myself so broke and trying to get as many income-related tiles as possible and this is really where the standard hexes and lakes have come in useful. But when you get onto a good thing and you've got a decent plan and you're looking like you'll meet your goals, your opponent isn't taking the buildings you're after and it just flows really well and there's lots of stuff to gain. So maybe I'm not so good at this game but I still enjoy it anyhow and I just love those little thematic elements just simple stuff like a farm being adjacent to several restaurants will earn you income or a fancy restaurant will earn you income until other restaurants pop up in other people's neighbourhoods or your own that sort of thing. I think it works really well within the game but I'm telling you sometimes I've built some pretty sorry looking neighbourhoods. In terms of artwork and fluff, it's pretty sparse, there's not much to it, there's not much to look at, but there's nothing wrong with that. I haven't played the expansions, or any other Ted aspect games for that matter, other than Castles of Mad King Ludwig, which I really wasn't as keen on, and maybe it's because it doesn't have that lovely hexagonal tile line that always gives me that wonderful sense of satisfaction, if you know what I mean. But I haven't played it in a while, so I'm not so sure, I would like to speak about the two games comparatively, and I may do that on a blog post shortly. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Maples, or visit my blog, www.shinyhatmaplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Maples. Bye for now.
2: Thanks for listening to the 5-by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5bygames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810 listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com.